You're listening to Sports, Digital and Social with Mr. Richard Clark. Even taking the Premier League, you know, Sky Sports got 6 million subscribers, but the Premier League doesn't know who any of those are. Sky are the ones who control that relationship. I would always hold the NFL up as the benchmark that every other sport should follow. The way they they manage the sport commercially, I think, you know, should be taught in business schools. I was saying way back last year that I didn't see Amazon as a threat when everyone else was bigging it up. And I got into some interesting debates with people talking about, well, Amazon have got loads of money. Surely they are a real threat. Hi there. David Murray is a consultant helping broadcasters negotiate their sports rights. He was head of BBC Sports Rights for 15 years until 2014, a period of immense change in the UK market. And for me, David is well positioned to talk about an area I really wanted to explore, namely the sports rights landscape in the UK and internationally, especially that much discussed entry of the social media platforms. Check out the show notes for links to David on all social. They're on my website, mrrichardclark.com along with links to other sport, digital and social podcasts, my Football Indonesia podcast, my blog, my newsletter, and all that jazz. Anyway, enough of the self-promotion. Here's David. My name's David Murray. I'm a director of a consultancy company called Fosmas, which advises both federations and broadcasters on exploiting sports rights. A bit of my background... I'm a qualified chartered accountant, then worked in investment banking in media and telecoms, advising on mergers and acquisitions. I then moved to the BBC in corporate finance to begin with, which was assessing the various investments the BBC went made across the board, be it you know, TV, property, web investments. That was the time you know, around the dot-com boom around 2001. And then I moved from there into sport at the BBC, it was a time when I suppose Sky was becoming much more dominant and it was appreciated that the old way of doing things for the BBC you know, and, and for ITV as well was was no longer valid. So people who'd, who'd worked in production who ended up doing sports deals perhaps didn't have the qualifications or the expertise to do, to do what were becoming increasingly more complicated deals. So I moved into sports rights and became head of sports rights for, for BBC Sport and negotiated pretty much every with every sports federation you can think of from the olympics the world cup euros formula one wimbledon six nations premier league yeah you name it i've probably done it cricket in one form or another and that was both for for tv and radio and then increasingly as as my time went on there was very much a digital element as as rights got got much more complicated I moved up in 2010 with BBC Sport up to Salford Keys and left at the end of 2013, as I said, to set up my own business um, with a colleague. I also negotiate and lecture and coach in negotiation on the side, started up my own training company as well. So I'm, I'm delving into you know, broader negotiation issues outside sport, but there's a clear, clear overlap there. You sound busy enough, certainly. (laughs) David, first of all, head of sports right at the BBC, 1999 to 2014. That's a period of incredible change in this particular arena and in terms of the strength of the BBC relative to Sky and other media outlets and the growth of digital. So 
what were the highlights and I suppose lowlights from a BBC perspective over that period of time in the market as a whole? From a BBC perspective, first of all, I think we were, were quite lucky when, when I first got involved in sport in that Greg Dyke was the director general uh, and the BBC had actually had quite a generous license fee settlement around about that time. So he did invest more money into sport, which, which helped us at the time. And there was a period when we, we held both the FA Cup and the Premier League rights and all of the Six Nations, Wimbledon and many other things. And probably our portfolio peaked around about 2004, 2005, something like that, I suspect. As far as competition is concerned, it's fair to say, you know, Sky were, were always the main, the main competitors there. But over that period, we had ITV Digital, which entered the market and exited the market. We had Satanta, which then exited and ESPN came along. And uh, then finally, you know, BT. So there's been quite a competitive environment in, in the pay broadcast market over that period. And it's probably fair to say that, yeah, Eurosport is probably is more of a, a force now than it was back then. ITV, from a sports perspective, is probably a lot stronger now than it than it was back then. Um, you know, relatively speaking. And part of my role at the BBC was also um, I was a vice president of the sports group at the European Broadcast Union. So when I started, the European Broadcast Union was was a relative powerhouse in rights acquisitions. So all the Olympic rights, the World Cup rights, and the European football rights were acquired through the EBU, along with with other more Olympic sports. But over that period. Uh, there was a move by those federations to towards dealing directly with the big five countries and then looking to the EBU and then eventually agencies um, to deal with, with the rump of the European market. So that kind of big ticket EBU market changed quite a lot. And then, then one final thing, I suppose from a technical perspective, the big change was the internet, the online and, and mobile capacity uh, you know introduction of, of those platforms when i was at hambrose which was back in 95 we were looking at you know the this idea of convergence of platforms when the you know the cable boom was just starting and i'd say it's probably only now that that convergence has actually fully taken place and even then not quite we're not quite there with you know internet speeds and and reliability but around about, I suppose, 2001, 2002 was when rights holders were seeing the potential of mobile and the potential of, of broadband, or might not even mean broadband then, and were starting to try and carve these rights out and monetize them in, in different ways. And it became quickly apparent, and I think the BBC was probably one of the leaders on this, that we needed to acquire rights on a, a platform neutral basis. But it was the way you packaged the rights up that made them suitable for certain platforms. So, for example, you know, it seems fairly routine now, but your know, mobile rights, you, know, you will acquire short clip rights for mobile. But those rights are still available on, you know, on any platform. They're just not suitable to, to any platform other than mobile, whereas live rights uh, are more suited to um, TV. But obviously with, with broadband, Wi-Fi, 4, 5G, etc. Streaming on, on mobiles is becoming much more common. So that platform neutral approach was quite radical at the time. And I think 
a lot of the federations didn't like the idea and particularly the agencies didn't like the idea of, of doing that because they thought there was this new pot of gold available for these rights which you know there wasn't and as soon as the lawyers started trying to contract on these platform neutral bases they realized quite how difficult it was what is a mobile device what is a what is an internet device so that was a pretty major change i think and it was when and i can't remember exactly when when the premier league its tender went platform neutral we knew that that we'd sort of won the war at that point because <laughs> where the premier league starts everybody follows what have you seen in terms of premier league rights in terms of the start, the middle, and, and the last one as well, because it seemed to grow slowly and not without a bump, and then it had a huge acceleration. And the last couple, people have been looking for chinks in the armour, but are they there? I was first involved in the Premier League auction process the second time around, which must have been about 1996 when I was at Hambro's Bank. Sky had won the first auction and I think they paid about £30 million. Um, and I have to apologise to listeners. I've done absolutely no preparation for this, so I don't necessarily have all the numbers <laughs> tips of my fingers. But it was around, I think it might have been £39 million, something like that. And if you recall, it was when ITV were trying to buy the rights and when Greg Dyke was, was there and Alan Sugar's reputed to have walked out of the the board because he was he was the Tottenham chairman and, and told Sky what they needed to pay because Alan <laughs> sold satellite dishes so he was slightly conflicted that's all of course alleged and um it's hearsay and um I've no idea whether it's true or not just putting my my legal protection hat on but the second auction Hambro's advised uh, the Mirror Group newspapers and Carlton Communications being one of the ITV companies to bid for Premier League rights as a joint venture. The, the idea was it would be a 50-50 joint venture with the Premier League to exploit those rights on, on the new cable industry and to uh, then sell them on to Sky. You know, we took the view, well, if Sky didn't have the rights, they would still need to buy them for their, their pay platform. And we put a pretty big guarantee on the table, and I can't remember the exact sum, but it was something like $600 million over the three years. And Sky... Maybe not that much, it, but it was it was a significant sum. And Sky beat it by a little bit, but all their money was guaranteed, whereas ours entailed a, a profit share element and obviously the Premier League owning 50% of the channel. So at the time, the clubs, you know, as clubs do, decided they wanted to take the money, the guaranteed money, so they could pay people more wages rather than looking at um, perhaps what was best for, for the long term. I, I actually think if the Premier League had taken that step back then, you know, the, the multi-billion value that Sky now has could have been the, the Premier League. Then I was involved in various ways with the BBC um, through radio and TV throughout my entire time and actually um, helped advise the BBC last time around, not, not this time, on various tenders. So I've been, I've been through all of them bar the first one. I think it's probably fair to say that Sky have built their business, as I said, on on the back of Premier League right. But the rights have generally only gone up when there's been significant competition in the marketplace. So there was a big jump at, you know, in that time when Carlton and, and Mirror bid. There was a big jump when ITV Digital were in the market, which was possibly the next auction. Then I think when ITV Digital went bust, the rights possibly even went down slightly because Sky had no competition. And then Satanta came into the market at the same time, the European Commission decided to regulate it and say you could only have you couldn't have one single buyer. 
And at the time, we felt, well, that might reduce the price because, you know, the power of exclusivity. But in actual fact, it did the opposite because Tanta were able to get one package, you know, relatively cheaply because they knew that, you know, Sky had to, had to give them one. It allowed them, you know, to tee off on some of the other packages, which forced Sky, Sky to pay more. So, you know, the, there was a big jump when Satanta came into the market. Then I think second time, second auction, Satanta slightly overreached themselves and Sky may have ended up getting an extra package. That could have been when Sky went to five packages, paying a lot more than they'd intended to. Satanta, as you know, then went bust and ESPN stepped in and then ESPN were involved in the next bid process. And forgive me, I can't remember all the dates, but at that point, ESPN didn't look particularly competitive and BT surprised everyone by jumping into the market. And that's when the, the, the rights really took off. So it went up by 70% the following two times. Just to address your question about you know, where we are now, um, last time in the auction, so the second BT auction, it's probably fair to say Sky massively overpaid so as I understand it, BT offered about a 20% increase you know, on the packages they were interested in, whereas Sky went up about 80%, which is what drove the, the overall 70% uplift. So you could argue they were overvalued last time around. So we're always, always due a, a bit of a correction. Add to that the fact that I think BT have probably reached their threshold about how much they want to pay on, on sports rights and football in general. And we're never likely to be, you know, be aggressively pursuing Sky. And I think Sky knew that. And of course, there was also the um, the wholesaling arrangement between BT and Sky that that possibly knocked a lot of the wind out of the market, you know, competitively. So you add all those different things up, and I think Sky saw, and we can come on to Amazon at some point, but Sky didn't really see any serious competition out there, which allowed them to reduce the, what was a perhaps a artificially high price last time around interestingly bt ended up paying more but i think that was partly because they seem to have messed up in because they, they i don't know if you noticed but they changed packages i don't know exactly what happened there but it looks like they perhaps went in too low for the saturday 5:30 package and then ended up having to pick up the the early saturday package which which isn't as good so they're paying more but without any first picks for the first time so it's really interesting from, a, you know, just to wrap up from a telecoms perspective, you know, has the, the telecom content bubble slightly burst? But as, as the Premier League have shown us, whenever one bubble goes away, you know, there, there's always somebody else who seems happy to step into the breach. And next time around or in the future, you know, it do, doesn't take a rocket scientist to see where the, the competition's potentially coming from. Okay, so yes, that was what I wanted to talk about. What we're calling, for want of a better phrase, Fang, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. That's that's that group of companies that were talked about getting involved in the EPL rights. Now, Netflix have counted themselves out, saying they're not interested in live sports. So is it Fag we're talking about here? Facebook, Amazon, Google. I know Google's called Alphabet, but it just doesn't them, work. Perhaps we should call them GAF. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we call them GAF. Yeah, but then again, Google's technically Alphabet. Whatever. I'm going to call them Fang. I'm going to ask you a question about their involvement. Everyone's hyped up their involvement. It hasn't quite happened. I know there's an extra two packages still to come, and they may be involved there. But do you think it's just a little bit 
too early? It's been seen as a little bit too early for them so far? Absolutely. And if you follow me on LinkedIn, and I'm, I'm more than happy to link in with anybody who, uh, <laughs> who approaches me, I was saying way back last year that I didn't see Amazon as, as a threat when everyone else was, was bigging it up. And I got into some interesting debates with people talking about, well, Amazon have got loads of money. Surely they, they are a real threat. I think the reason why this, it was too early this time, and, and there's a whole host of reasons, and I'll see if I can remember can remember them all. First of all, if you were about to launch a massive bid for Premier League, why would you have bought ATP Tennis, which, you know, all it did was signal the market that Amazon was suddenly interested in UK sports rights. I saw that as a, a dip in the to- a toe dipping in the water just to, you know, see how sports rights worked on Amazon Prime rather than, you know, suddenly, you know, the taste of them investing in huge amounts of money. And I suspect they will continue to acquire rights which which suit their needs, but I'd be amazed if they spend a fortune on the rights. The second reason being, you know, Amazon Prime model is whatever it is, eighty pounds a year, simply wouldn't pay for for Premier League rights. You know, okay, Amazon, you know, is is a massive company and turns over tens of billions of, of dollars a year, but it still has to has to make money and still has to conform with its its business model, which is ultimately selling packages, uh, you know, selling parcels. So the second reason why I was I was skeptical was they would need to you know start charging two three hundred pounds a year on top of Amazon Prime, you know, if, if they spent you know a few billion to acquire those rights, and to acquire you know the the way the Premier League auction works is you know the incumbents have an inbuilt advantage as long as they they you know they step up to the plate and we saw that in the bt when bt bids first time around they were ahead after the first round as i understand it in five of the packages but the premier league went back to sky and said look you've got to up your game so for for amazon to launch a, a kind of preemptive strike they would not only have to bid you know way over where where sky currently was which was already, as you know, pretty hefty, but then risk, you know, Sky coming back and going over the top of them again. So it would have required serious, serious money. We're talking billions to just get into the game. So I didn't really see how that married into the Amazon business model. And then my my other reason was I just don't think broadband is in the UK is robust enough at the moment for Amazon suddenly to start streaming you know, millions of, of streams of Premier League football. You know, the Amazon brand is what it's all about. And you just need, you know, one major game to go wrong, as ITV can tell you, or, um, you know, NFL Game Pass, I know, has had issues. And, you know, streaming is a completely different game to, you know, dr- delivery of on-demand drama, because in on-demand drama, obviously, you can buffer it or you can download it, whereas live streaming is, is something completely different. It's got to be live and it's got to work. So it seemed a, a risk to both the Premier League and the Amazon's brand if they were to go down that route, which was another reason why I was sceptical. Saying all that, who knows where these things are going to go in the future? I haven't talked about Facebook for Premier League just because Facebook is an advertising model as it currently stands and you know the pay model. The economics of a, of a pay TV model and the the numbers each subscriber can generate far outweigh you know any advertising driven model so for for facebook to to get involved in those live rights they would need to 
change that model, their, their own model again. And, you know, same with YouTube. A subscri- it needs to be a subscription model of some kind if it's going to if it's going to add up. But as I said, you know, Facebook now, you know, they've recruited Peter Hutton. They genuinely want to get into sport. They've got money to spend on sport. Do they have billions to spend on sports for, for one particular market? I suspect not at this point, but who knows where they may get to next time around. We're, we're three years away now from the next auction. The interesting thing for me is what the Premier League does now with these other packages. You know, I, I did suggest when they were at the time when they were withdrawn, maybe there's an opportunity for the Premier League to start their own over-the-top service and use this bit like the NFL did with NFL Network as a, you know, a, a, just a marker as to what a future you know, Premier League OTT proposition could like could could look like. Because if, if BT does step back from the rights market, which is always possible, you, you just need to look at their share price since they entered the content market and what it's done. And I know there's lots of fact, other factors in there, but you could see BT deciding to step back and just carry Sky's channels. If that happens... And the likes of Amazon, Facebook aren't ready to step up in three years' time. I think strategically, it would be quite useful for the Premier League to have their own proposition road tested to prevent, to, you know, to present a bit of competition to Sky. Sky will be under new owners, you know, whatever happens. So they may feel at that point, well, if there's no competition, we're paying an awful lot of money for Premier League. It's not quite as important to to Sky or to you know, Disney or, or Comcast as it was you know, to Sky on its own. They can afford to take a bit more of a gamble. So I think it's important to the Premier League to ensure that there is some, some genuine competition next time around, even if that's their own in-house service. Talking about the OTT players, there's DAZN, backed by Perform. There's Eleven, Andrea Radiziani's company. They've been scooping up, it seems, major events in smaller territories or smaller events in major territories, broadly speaking. Mm. Have they got what it takes to cut through quickly, to make an impact quickly? It depends on the market because you've touched on it. It's If you're operating in that space as, a, as an OTT service, it's much easier to scoop up the low-value stuff uh, or to, to compete you know, where there's not a lot of competition. The UK market with BT and Sky is... You could argue that the rights being that the values being paid for sports rights at the moment don't reflect their commercial value anymore. They reflect strategic value. And, um, and that was a point I was going to make, actually, just to, to butt in for a second. <laughs> is it worth it anymore? Is football worth it anymore? Because a year ago, people were talking about the audiences for Sky had gone down a certain amount. I know that was at the start of the season. And NFL, they were talking about viewing figures going down. Is Are these premium two sports leagues, do they have the appeal with the public that actually is, is reflected genuinely in the amount that's paid for them? Or is it a well, talisman, a totem pole? That's a $64,000 question. It's, it's more than that. $64 billion <laughs> question. Um, personally, well, you know, there's the, a kind of multi-part answer to this, I suppose. And, and I don't think anyone really knows for sure one way or the other. There's no doubt audience trends are, are changing. Whether that's because people are consuming that content in different ways, which has yet to be recognised, or whether people are losing interest, you know, is, is one question. If you look at something like the Premier League, there's more content and there's more, yeah, you know, more matches, and some of the matches aren't as good. 
but the Sky subscription model is very much built on, you know, you pay a price and you watch the Premier League. If you watch five games or 10 games, it's still the same price. So there may be a degree of people watching fewer of the lesser games, which has diluted those numbers a bit. Whereas, you know, it, it feels to me like the big games are as, as probably as big as ever. The power of sport relative to other genres in the, in the media is still, you know, that hasn't gone away. You know, people still want to watch live events that they don't know the results to, you know, like X Factor. Whereas TV, you can watch at any point, you know, which is why it's, it, you know, it seems to be going towards the on-demand market. But sport is one of the few products that delivers kind of younger male audiences, which is why it continues to be attractive, you know, to drive new platforms, new technologies. So relative to other media, I think sport will continue to outperform. And there's no doubt the big leagues, you know, more and more money is, is being focused in, in fewer and fewer sports. So the big leagues are hoovering up a lot, which is leaving the medium sports with less money. And that's why you know, the likes of Darzone and some of these other platforms are able to start picking these up because you know, they're probably undervalued for the reasons that all the money's gone into into these other sports. So relatively speaking, I think sport will continue to hold its value and, and perhaps outperform. I suppose the, the fundamental question is where the overall media market is going. So my 12-year-old doesn't watch TV. <laughs> he just views YouTube or, or whatever else. And he doesn't. He is a very keen sportsman, plays loads of sport, but he generally doesn't watch live sport. He'll watch highlights. And there doesn't seem to be the same interest in what's happening now rather than, you know, I'll watch some highlights from a week ago or, or whatever. He, there's not that same interest in live sport. So I was having this debate with somebody the other day. Um, if you look at the way you know, sort of TV audiences are measured, it's generally the first point they're measured are in the, is in the 14 to 25 bracket. But they're measured 14 to 25. So there's, no one seems to have, as far as I know, measured, well, what are the 14-year-olds watching? What are the 16-year-olds watching? What are the 12 or 10-year-olds watching? So I do worry that it might fall off a cliff at some point because nobody really understands. If you're not watching telly at 8 or 10 or 12 or 14, are you suddenly going to start watching it? And I, I'm not sure you will. I think there's this pent-up change coming that i don't think anyone has really measured and of course because no one's measured it's it's a bit i'm I'm speculating slightly but i do think it's coming but just to put it into context you know still the vast vast majority or the majority of the population are over 55 so we've got this trend but it's quite a slow slow burn trend it's a bit like my convergence that i mentioned earlier you know 20 years ago Everyone in the industry, it was the sexy thing. This is coming. But things tend to take much longer than we think for them to come through. So linear TV, for example, you know, the industry is all about on demand and and OTT and everything. But linear TV still represents, you know, kind of 90 odd percent of people's viewing. So it's still by far the dominant player and will continue to be. But it will decline slowly. The, The question is, you know, how quickly will that decline come? And how do these other sports, A, measure this new way of consuming them themselves, measure and monetize, and B, how do they also try and capture some of these kids who aren't watching in the traditional way? 
Yeah, I completely agree with you. I've got an 11-year-old who watches Netflix, YouTube, and plays games and watches gaming on YouTube or Twitch. My daughter's got a YouTube channel. So we were of that opinion. We made a decision as a household to, okay, I'm going to buy Sky again. Is it worth it? Because the big TV isn't being watched. They're, They're on their Kindles or whatever in their in their rooms and i'm really i was going to say no offense but it is an offense i'm not interested in stoke versus burnley live mm. i'm just not interested i'm going to watch arsenal every every time they're my team i'm going to watch the big games but i'm just not interested in stoke versus burnley so is it a case of i'm buying now tv on a weekly basis trying to be pick and choose where i need to but also we've got a, t- a situation where it's hard to get tickets so buying Going as a family or going as me and my son would be 150, 200 quid mm. once you're there back and had some food and drink and stuff. So you've got a situation where kids, are they that interested at that sort of age? It's very expensive to go and also actually quite difficult to get tickets. But so many people have talked about the bubble is going to burst. There's so much pressure on this market. It's not happened. I've been predicting the bubble is going to burst for 10 years. I've been wrong every time. Well, I don't think... So I don't, I'm going to ask you when I want a date. Yeah, I wouldn't call it a bubble. Um, it's not a bubble. I, it, it, it's not, and it's not going to burst. I think that there might be a slow leak. Okay, well, that's fair enough, but, that, but that's a different way of viewing it. Yeah, okay, fine. It, it'll be a um, leak. So I think, I think over time it will correct itself. A, you know, will the, the platforms continue to play, pay, you know, major significant premiums only if, if there's competition? Is there the competition at the moment because the prices are so high? And B, as you said, people's way of viewing content is, is changing. And Sky's Sky's very expensive. I, I'm the same as you. Yeah, no, I've got Sky because I need it for my, my job. But the two sports I would probably pay for to watch would be cricket and NFL. I'm a big NFL fan. Of course, I can get NFL Game Pass, which is £200 a year. If there was a cricket game pass for something similar, then I'd get those two. I've, I've got Amazon Prime because I bought, got that for packages, but there's lots of content on there. There's iPlayer. There's all these other ways of getting content. I don't have Netflix, even though it seems to have tremendous stuff, but I've got so much content, it's impossible to watch it all. And I think that there's a risk in this whole um, drama on demand business that I think there's a bubble. I genuinely think there's a bubble there that's going to pop. But I think on the sports side, it's more of a slow leak and an evolution, or, or maybe just you know gradually finding get, getting back to its equilibrium point, as opposed to you know being above its its natural equilibrium at the moment. Let's talk cricket. You mentioned it, and it was on your watch at the BBC that there was this major change. Two thousand and five, the Ashes. Fantastic series between England and Australia. We win it back. Mm-hmm. It's not only good for that reason. Sportsmanship, every test was close. Absolutely fantastic that it was on Channel 4, I think it was, well, at yeah. that time. And, of course, then what happens is the ECB, I think I'm right in saying, having lobbied to come off the protected list, then sell out to Sky, it's seen as a massive negative because it's not on free-to-air television and all that groundswell of support where cricket was properly back page leads and even front page a bit got lost and the sports had trouble and then now they're trying to correct it with reinvention of 2020 the 100 rather than the 2020 
And the most important part of that, or one of the most important parts of that, was getting it back on the BBC. So mm. the story of cricket, as a huge cricket fan myself, is is a lesson of getting it wrong to a certain extent. Do, do you agree with that? Um, I wouldn't be quite as black and white as that. Yeah, no, the difficult. I, I think you know, if you go back to two thousand five, yeah, there was a lot of money there being dangled in front of the ECB's nose by Sky. In hindsight, I suspect the ECB would say that they didn't necessarily, they didn't get the balance right. They shouldn't have sold all of cricket to Sky. They missed. I think the Ashes actually probably came after they'd already sold sold it to Sky. I think so that's may, right. Yeah, I think you're they right. may have changed. They may have changed things. You know, if they'd done it after the Ashes, saying that you know the viewers will will get lots of money. We can invest it in grassroots, which then you know will grow the game and participation, and it will remain remain strong. And you know, to an extent. That money was invested in, you know, in the England setup and in, you know, bringing players through. And England had a pretty good, you know, successful run of it off the back of the investment that they were able to make or the increased investment they were able to make into into cricket. I think Tom Harrison, when he came in, recognised that you know, cricket was missing out because, you know, the, the kids didn't know who the, all these heroes were. It's, it's one thing being successful, but if nobody knows who you are and it was losing its interest and it needed more exposure, the big bash, I was actually over for the last dashes in Australia when we got absolutely hammered, which doesn't nail it down, but when was it? 2000? <laughs> that, that, that could be, yeah, quite a few uh, since 2005. Yeah, we lost every test, that one. Um <laughs> In 2014, and I ended up watching quite a lot of the Big Bash when I was over there, and I think it might have been the second year of it. And it was a it was a massive success. Looking at that and the way Cricket Australia had handled that with prime time cricket, and of course, you know, we can talk about Cricket Australia in a bit. But cricket's always been free to air in Australia. It's the national sport of Australia, and every night there was a 2020 Big Bash game, at least one on on Channel 10, which is one of the the main free-to-air channels there and it was a huge success and I think the ECB looked at that and thought we need something like that to get kids and families more interested you know all back into the game and, and going to games and I know Andrew Strauss got himself into slightly hot water the other day talking about you know making the game simple enough to appeal to kids and families I think it's more about making the game accessible to kids and families in a way that you know, they want to go to these games. You know, they, they were lucky, you know, BT's competitiveness made they were meant they were able to carve some some rights out from the Sky package and still get a, a huge uplift. The reason for that uplift was, you know, the ECB, in hindsight, it's a wonderful thing, but sold their rights just before BT entered the market and then gave Sky an option to extend those rights. So they'd, they'd had six years without that, that BT premium. So... The ECB were in a position that they could sell the rights for more while carving out, you know, some sort of rights for, for free to air TV. Now, I would argue they haven't carved out enough, but saying that, you know, it's one thing, you know, trying to do this, but it's quite hard getting free to air broadcasters to put cricket on, you know, in prime time or you know, on their main channels, just because, you know, cricket doesn't necessarily command the audiences apart from the ashes that, that would justify that. So they made a good first step. We shall see how successful it is. But you know, having having you know cricket on free to air, live cricket on free to air again is 
is a good thing. You know, whether you know you can debate whether the hundred ball or or twenty twenty is the right thing for them to be doing. I would argue that they should stick with twenty twenty because that's what the rest of the world plays. However, I'm sure the ECB have done their market research and and have a good reason for why, hopefully other than to keep the counties happy in the T20 blast, why they want to go this way. Yeah, my kid, well, both my kids are very keen cricketers and they all play 20 overs. So kids understand 20 over cricket, but I'm not here to diss 100 ball cricket it might it might be a fantastic success we were all slightly skeptical about t20 and look what you know where that went the slightly disappointing thing is that you know the ecb were the ones that invented t20 but then have let you know the ipl and big bash and you know certainly those two overtake them you need to you know we go to old trafford a lot and you know there is no entertainment really around t20 you compare it to the big bash or around the blast you compare the big bash of the ipl the cornucopia of noise and atmosphere and entertainment and i'm not sure the counties have quite got that yet so hopefully this new product will be a, a step in the right direction i call it though it used to be my nine-year-old daughter test it's now my 10-year-old daughter test can a sport appeal to her even if she's not that interested in the sport so going to an event going to a game I think needs, you know, and this isn't just an issue for cricket. It's sports need to find ways in this competitive environment to attract families and kids who won't necessarily know that much about or be that interested in the sport. But by getting them in there and making it an entertaining and enjoyable evening, they come back. And by coming back and being exposed, they then learn about the sport. Yeah, that's what I had in America. I I went to the Denver Nuggets a lot while I was working for the Colorado Rapids. And I like the sport. I'm not a massive basketball fan, but it was good to go and watch. My son got into the sport. My wife liked the sport. My daughter, not interested in the sport, but the mascot that the Denver Nuggets had was Rocky, which is one of the best mascots I've ever seen in my life. The entertainment the guy gives is fantastic. And Mm. that was enough, which meant it isn't... I'm not dragging my daughter there. She'll go along and sit there and watch Rocky, and that'll be great. She probably looks forward to the breaks in the play much more than the play, but that's enough for her not to be dragged. And she has an understanding of the sport on the back of it. Just getting back to the cricket, I'm a huge county cricket fan. My issue, just to get back on my soapbox a bit, is the fact that um, the new tournament is to the detriment of the counties. And if they'd invested the same way in the counties, then with that depth of support, Lancashire has a huge history to it. Yorkshire does, uh, Essex less so, but it certainly has some history. You're asking for cricket fans to latch on to new clubs and it feels a little bit like what happened to rugby league back in the 90s when there was a huge uh i think it was to do with sky a huge almost a, a night of the long knives o- over the sport and i don't think rugby league has been the same since it feels like a tv company or a, a governing body modernizing the sport via the big stick method where everything has to change yeah i think the problem if you compare it to Australia, and I know the guys who set up the Big Bash quite well, it was a much easier proposition in Australia because you have however many, is it six state sides yeah. and eight, eight Big Bash teams. So they basically could put two teams in Melbourne and Sydney and then a team in every state, you know, capital. 
you know, if you, if you support Adelaide, then you'll support whoever the Adelaide team is. I can't remember their name. Um, if you support Western Australia, you support Perth, Perth Scorchers. In Melbourne and Sydney, you know, the main team in Melbourne is the Stars, which plays at the MCG, and then the other one plays at the other big arena. And then you get some local derby games as well, which, which work really well. I think the problem that county cricket has got is there's too many counties and to make a compelling franchise T20 proposition, you need fewer, you know, it works better with fewer counties. So they're, they're having to come rather than just bite the bullet and say, well, let's just have a, let's just have Lancashire, Yorkshire, you know, who, you know, Surrey, Middlesex, Warwickshire plus or Birmingham Bears or whatever they're called now, plus, you know, another three or, or, or you know, perhaps Hampshire, Glamorgan and Durham or whoever. They're trying to fudge it a bit. And I'm sure that the hundred ball thing is is a result of a fudge to keep the county happy, so that it doesn't destroy the existing T20 property. But you're right; they should just be the one T20 property and do it really right at a time of the year when, in my view, when there's no international cricket on. Because I also have problems with yeah you know, the international Test players not being available during your showpiece event that's on free to air telly. Now, of course, it's it's like herding cats because there's so many issues here that you know it although i'm being a bit critical there is no doubt it's a step in the right direction the question is yeah are there things that could be done better let's talk about cricket australia for a second because that new rights deal is a big change it's happened relatively recently and you've got it now tell me if i'm right but i think it's coming off entirely free to air it's going to a split model with some free to air and some behind a paid for wall and also the other thing that happened there was the quote unquote new media if we call it new media but the fang platforms didn't enter the fray which was again seen as a bit of a surprise have i called that right yeah so the interesting thing and test cricket still listed in australia so the first major shock was that Channel Nine, who've been doing you know broadcasting international cricket since Kerry Packer days, you know that ended in 1979, 1980, something like that, and were a huge institution for Australian cricket. See, didn't win, and have bought the um, Aussie Tennis instead. So there was a question mark about well, was Cricket Australia asking for too much money on the basis crickets, you know? A bit like football here, it was you, know, you could argue maybe it was too expensive. And the Big Bash had been massively ex- successful on Channel 10, but at a, quite a low price because when Channel 10 bought the rights, nobody really knew what it was what it was going to be. To get to meet their revenue targets, which was something like a billion dollars, Cricket Australia decided to change their model and put some of it onto onto pay TV. Saying that the the test matches remain on free to air. The pay pay channel, which I think was Foxtel, have all the international international one dayers and T twenties exclusively, and simulcast the tests. And then they have all the big bash matches, and a portion of them are exclusive. But they've increased the number of them, so I think there's still going to be the same number of big mat bash matches on free to air telly. So they're not holding the model and in keeping it going because they recognise it's been a massive success. But there's been that that swing towards pay. I think they've probably got the balance right still, you know, they of maximising revenue and, and keeping exposure in a way that perhaps the ECB should have done way back in, in two thousand and five. 
As far as the, the platforms are concerned, um, I suspect the values are probably too high to justify entering into the market in Australia's, you know, forgive, you know, my Australian friends forgive me, but it's still a relatively small market. Yeah, there's, you know, clearly Facebook's interested in cricket, you know, and India represents a massive market for them. And that might be where they choose to, you know, concentrate their fire rather than in Australia. And it seems that Amazon's very interested in tennis as well, because they've got the ATP Tour, they've just got US Open in the UK, I believe. And of course, the Eurosport deal has opened them up. So effectively, if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you can mm. also get Aussie Open, French Open, some non-exclusive stuff from Wimbledon. Why would Amazon have gone there, particularly with well, tennis, do you think? I think there's possibly two factors. I think Sky has lost its interest in tennis. It's interesting that they didn't create a tennis channel and you know, weren't prepared to pay you know, the price for ATP tennis. I suspect outside the Grand Slams, tennis doesn't really cut through at all. And you know, looking at you know, Andy Murray's kind of on his last legs, literally, who's going to take over and who's going to drive tennis in the UK and you losing Federer and Nadal you know, in, in the next couple of years as well and Djokovic. So that golden era of tennis, that there will be a lull before the next generation of, of stars come through. To Sky... You know, for the reasons we've discussed, they're spending so much money on their key strategic sports. They're taking the opportunity of, of cutting things elsewhere. So their key strategic sports would seem to be, you know, football, Formula One and cricket with a bit of golf thrown in. But then I was surprised, or a lot of golf, but I was surprised that they were prepared to walk away from the US PGA event, having just picked up the, the Open to give them all the Grand Slams. For Amazons, I think they saw it as... Yeah, a relatively cheap way of, you know, gives them, I think it's something like 200 hours of content a year for a relatively cheap price. And I don't know this, but I suspect the tennis demographic probably marries quite nicely with their target parcel demographic. And they see tennis as a good way to send, sell, you know, lots of stuff alongside it. Plus a, a good experiment just to understand how, you know, the sports markets work because of course the beauty of all these digital platforms is you know, controversially slightly you know they, they will get all the data from these people and know exactly how you know what they're interested in what they operate in and then they can learn lessons from that you know for, for whatever their next wave of, of acquisition might be we hear a lot these days about people comparing television viewing figures with social media viewing figures YouTube views uh, compared to, or Twitch views compared to TV viewing figures. And a lot of people have a big problem with that. Do you have a problem with that? Well, I suppose it, as, as long as you're, if you're measuring like for like, I wouldn't claim to be an expert on this, but you know, TV viewing generally means, tends to be over a much longer period of time, whereas social media, digital viewing is, is generally in very short packages. You know, you could argue that a short, sweet, you know, view of a sport is more powerful than a, a long kind of sleeping in front of the sofa view. And, you know, it's a bit more interactive. So people are, you know, distinctly choosing to watch it and are able to be reached, you know, much more easily by, you know, sponsors and advertisers. Although, you know, then the other factor is how real is a lot of this digital data because there seems to be a lot of, a lot of faking going on. So I don't, you know, I think a viewer is a viewer. However, you know, as we said, you know, on a platform neutral basis, if people are viewing something on one platform or another, it's, for me, it, it's just the same as long as 
we're measuring light with like and it's it's you know genuine measurement just a couple more turning to the future do you see esports as an increasingly attractive proposition for broadcasters well, I yeah, I have to be careful here because I have to say I don't. I'm of that generation. I don't really get esports. My view of esports is there's a lot of froth out there at the moment. And you talk about bubbles. You know, there's a risk of an esport bubble. And the example I give is Overwatch. So I think in the US, a number of different franchises have just bought into Overwatch and spent tens of millions of dollars buying these Overwatch franchises in a league and behaving as if it's uh, you know a an established sport the difficulty i have is my son got overwatch for christmas and within a few weeks he was playing fortnite and given up on overwatch so i'm not sure how loyal you know the, these new games you know the loyalty for them will drift to other things so how sticky are these these propositions i don't know i would argue they're probably not that sticky Saying that, I think the sports that do have the potential to cut through and for longevity are those sports around, you know, the traditional sports. So something like, you know, FIFA or Madden. I think Madden in particular could really go places. It was interesting to see that last year NBC on Thursday Night Football had that count. I don't know if you're an NFL fan, but stuck a camera behind the quarterback on a wire cam to give you the same angle that you get on Madden. So the sport is almost copying, you know, the game in that sense. So I think, and there you've got, you know, obviously people have loyalty towards the teams and the sport. And in that aspect, I think there's a lot of potential. And then once you start throwing in kind of augmented reality and the ability to almost be in the middle of the game, I would see that as having more potential than you know, leagues for random games that might not be here in a year's time. You didn't talk NFL. I know you're a big fan, or you said you're a big fan. In terms of NFL, they've had some interesting experiments because there's challenges within that market, viewing figures, and also attendance in the stadiums. Concern about both of those becoming more fragile. They've gone on Amazon, they've gone on Twitter in the last couple of years. What do you make of those experiments and NFL's reappraisal of its broadcast properties? Um, I would always hold the NFL up as the benchmark that every other sport should follow. You know, obviously there's been a few controversies around the sport, so you know, I'm not going to get into that. But the way they manage the sport commercially, I think, you know, should be taught in, in business schools. And, you know, the NFL's always been pretty forward looking and of course it's got the money that allows it to be so as i said you know they introduced the nfl network and they had thursday night games on, on that you know and talked about the wire cam innovation this time around you know twitter etc so they're always looking at different ways you know the amount they're investing a huge amount of money in you know ultimately bringing a team here i suspect they'll end up being a team in london in, in mexico kind of in the next decade certainly where is the NFL going? It still produces the biggest audience moments of any TV property in, in the US. It's fallen back a little bit, but as has everything, but it's still the dominant property. So I don't see it. I don't see it going anywhere in the near future. And interesting enough, I think Fox just bought Thursday Night Football, which is the weakest of all its properties. And you could argue if, you know, 
the NFL's all pri- always pride itself on scarcity. So there's only you know you only play 16 games in the regular season. That that Thursday night proposition is is quite weak. Um, and if they were going to get rid of anything, they'd probably get rid of that. And yet Fox has just I think doubled the money for it. So there's massive appetite from broadcasters still for the NFL because it although the audiences may be falling a little bit, it's still massively more popular than anything else out there. And just finally, if you're putting together a rights deal now, you've got different challenges, free-to-air television, satellite television, over-the-top platforms, social media. What's your blueprint for how to approach it? There's no right or wrong way of doing these things. There's no blueprint. You need to look at the circumstances of every sport separately. I think, though, there are certain trends, and I'd be advising any sports federation to be looking at where it sees itself in in five or ten years time which is you know it's getting easier and easier to deliver content directly to the consumer even taking the premier league you know sky sports got six million subscribers but the premier league doesn't know who any of those are sky are the ones who control that relationship sports are now being able to you know directly yeah, manage that relationship with their customers by delivering content directly to those customers, which allows them to cross-sell all kinds of other things. That trend will only continue and it, as it gets cheaper and cheaper to do so. And as the big sports media companies concentrate their firepower on, on fewer and fewer sports, so having that plan B and putting it in place for the long term is absolutely essential. I also think it's important to maintain a degree of free-to-air coverage or free coverage where possible because with the possible exception of football, every sport needs to be accessible because without that accessibility, you know, the viewing figures long-term will, will fall and, and people will stop, kids will stop playing it. You need that accessibility, which is why you know, free-to-air, whatever that might be, is really important. And that's not necessarily about you know, having a, a BBC or an ITV. You know, Facebook is really interesting given that it is essentially a free-to-air model. And, you know, other online platforms, how can you use those in a way that gets your content out there in, in a free way and attracts, you know, audiences and, and, and viewers to your sport? Instagram is another really interesting one, obviously owned by Facebook. So it's how do you use these new digital tools how do you create a platform to go directly to customers that allow you know, which also is good for your sponsors how do you maintain a free-to-air element but at the same time you know if there's money out there on a pay basis you, you know as we talked about with cricket australia you need to find a balance between you know exposure and and revenue because without the revenue the, the sport also dies on that low point <laughs> we'll end it no, that, there. that wasn't meant to be a low point a, <laughs> they need yeah, everyone needs money <laughs> david murray thank you very much thank you you've been listening to sport digital and social with mr richard clark rate review and subscribe on itunes You can find Richard on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram by searching for at Mr. Richard Clark or at his website, mrrichardclark.com. Listener.